This Lord's Day, we will be considering from Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, and verses 14 through 23. And as we have done in the past, we will read the appropriate passages as we come to that in the text. From what source proceeds moral pollution? Does it come from a physical object or from the heart of a man? Of course, any physical object or any outward act specifically forbidden by God is one which we must avoid at all costs. But even then, is it the physical object in and of itself that defiles a man? Or is it the sinful heart that would do what God forbids that defiles a man. For example, when Adam was forbidden from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was the fruit of that tree in and of itself evil? No. The fruit in and of itself was not evil. It was evil because the Lord had forbidden it. And the sin involved proceeded from the heart of Adam and of Eve in heeding not the authoritative word of the Lord. Dear ones, in order to settle many ethical issues that confront us in the course of our lives, it is necessary to separate the physical object or act from the moral condition of the heart. For to lodge sin in the physical object is to fall prey to the Gnostic heresy that the material world is evil while the spiritual world is good. Such of you, dear ones, of the world consistently leads to God being the author of sin. For if He created all things, the material as well as the immaterial, the visible as well as the invisible, then He created that which was evil, if there is evil within the actual creation itself. Such a view ultimately leads to Christ's work as well being useless. For if He was without a real body body, the material nature itself being sinful according to the Gnostic heresy. If Christ was conceived, born, lived a life, went to the cross without a real body, he was not a true man and could not suffer the penalty of man's sin. And if Christ had no real body in death, then he was not bodily raised from the dead. And if Christ was not bodily raised from the dead, neither will we be bodily raised from the dead. And so this particular heresy has many uh, applications and implications. The Lord Jesus makes it abundantly clear from our text that sin proceeds from the heart of a man and not either from a physical act in and of itself or from a physical object. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. Number one, sin originates not from the outward act of a man 
Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 19. And number two, sin originates from the inward lust of a man. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. Let us then consider the very first point. Sin originates not from the outward act of a man. I'll be reading Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 19. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught of purging all meats. Proceeding from his testimony against the outward traditions of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, which we considered last Lord's Day, The Lord makes another application as to where mere tradition in worship will ultimately lead. You will recall that the Lord emphasized from our text last Lord's Day that if we rob God of the honor that belongs to Him in worship, we will also eventually be robbing God of the honor that belongs to or the honor of parents or the honor of our neighbor, the respect, the love that is due them. As a man worships, so will he live. If he robs God, he'll rob man in various ways. In other words, to state it another way, if we do not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we will not love our neighbor as ourself. However, if we do love the Lord our God by seeking to keep the first four of God's Ten Commandments, then we will also love our neighbor by seeking to keep the last six of God's Ten Commandments. Thus, let us note the utter contradiction of a church that will prevent people from coming to the Lord's Supper if they commit adultery, one of the last six of God's commandments, but will not prevent that person from coming to the Lord's Supper if they embrace unsound doctrine or practice corrupt worship or church government, which are embodied in the first four of God's Ten Commandments. There can be no separation in the application of God's moral law. They are a unit. They are tied and bound together. 
And furthermore, if a civil government will not uphold and enforce the first four commandments, but rather tolerates every perverse way of dishonoring the Lord our God, it is no wonder to find that nation spiraling into gross perversity and corruption of the last six commandments in dishonoring one's neighbor in every possible way. Well, there is one more application of the outward tradition of the Pharisees that Christ would emphasize from our text today, and it is this. The tradition of the Pharisees focused upon the outward acts of man without noting the inward motives of man. Thus, the effect of the teaching of the Pharisees was to consider both sin and righteousness as proceeding from mere externals. The thoughts and intents of the heart were were pushed so far back into the the background that they played no significant part at all in the religion of the Pharisees, in their relationship with God. Apparently, the Lord directed His discourse against man-made tradition and worship in the very presence of the Pharisees. In chapter 7, verses 6 through 13, this particular part of the, of the chapter where the Lord is specifically talking about the tradition of the elders, the tradition of the Pharisees, He is directing toward the Pharisees in their very presence. But there's a transition as we come to verse 14 when it says, And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them. Now he turns from the Pharisees and calls the crowd, the multitude about him, calls them to gather unto him because he has something to say to them. The two main points he would seek to drive home to the crowd are summarized in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. The Lord says, There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. That's the first main point. Nothing from outside can enter in to defile a man. That's not the basis in and of itself upon which a man is defiled. The second main point But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. The things that proceed from his heart are the things that defile the man. Those are the, as I said, the two main points of the sermon, the text which we are looking at today. The Lord summarizes those in verse 15 for the crowd, for the multitude at large. But it's interesting, the Lord didn't go uh, on to further explain to the crowd or the multitude, what that meant. He simply laid before them the truths. We can assume that that was the case because just a couple of verses later, the disciples come to him and say, Lord, what did you mean by that parable? We don't understand what you meant. And so this was given in simply a very broad uh, manner without explication, without Uh, expounding for the sake of the people what it meant. Why would the Lord 
do that? Why would he give them this truth, the, the multitude? Why would he gather them unto himself, away from the Pharisees, give them this broad truth, and not go into any further explanation? But yet when the disciples come to him, he would give to them a clear explanation as to what he meant. Well, I would suggest it was in order to separate those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and truth from those who are merely curious to see a miracle or to follow the crowd. And I think that's the reason that we find in Mark 7.16. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. There are many who had their ears physically open and heard, but perhaps there were not very many who had their spiritual appetite such that they were willing to embrace and to listen closely and to receive with faith and love what Christ presented to them. Those who are merely curious will eventually, dear ones, fade away from the paths of righteousness and truth, as did those who witnessed the miracle of Christ in multiplying the bread and the fish. In John chapter 6, verse 66, the Lord, the previous day, had just performed <clears throat> this mighty miracle of multiplying the bread and the fish. And in this particular chapter, he gives a discourse that he is himself the bread of life that has come down to give life to the world. And he goes on to explain in this discourse that they must partake of him. They must by faith eat of him. He wasn't speaking as the Romish doctrine would uh, indicate that they must eat literally the flesh and the blood of Christ. He was indicating that they must partake of Him by faith. They must partake of His benefits, His work, all that He has accomplished on their behalf through His flesh and through His blood. They must partake of Him. Well, as we come to verse 66 of John chapter 6, we note these words. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Verse 67, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. See the difference between those who are curious and those who are earnestly hungering and thirsting for truth and righteousness. Where else can we go, Lord? Who else has the words of eternal life? Those who hunger and thirst to understand Christ's doctrine, Christ's worship, Christ's government, Christ's discipline, will earnestly apply themselves in study and prayer. They will seek to use the time that is available to them to know the Lord better, to know His doctrines better, to become more acquainted, for to become more acquainted with the doctrine of Christ, the worship of Christ, the government of Christ, and the discipline of Christ, is to become more acquainted with Christ as well. For we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ in all that He has revealed to us in His Word. We're not to be content with our level of knowledge of Christ a year ago. 
We are to continue to have within us that urgency, that fervency to grow. Dear ones, when we compare ourselves to Christians of the past, I would dare say, and I include myself, we are spiritual pygmies in comparison to so many who have preceded us. We need to recognize we have so much more to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And to be content with where we are today is a gross sin on our behalf. Those who truly desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, dear ones, will also seek to be diligent in all the areas where God has already clearly revealed His will to them. Why should the Lord give us more understanding of His Word and His will and His revelation if we are not even doing that which we do understand? If we have pushed that into the background, some of the most conspicuous and evident duties that God would give to us to do, things that are not over our head, it's simply that we don't want to do them. Why should God give us more understanding if we will not even seek to grow in those areas where we have understanding. The hungering disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ asked him, after he had given this broad general statement to the multitude, his disciples pulled him aside as he went into the house and they asked him, to give them a further explanation. Tell them what he meant by that general statement to the multitudes. And in verse 18, the Lord gently rebukes them for their ignorance. When he says, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive? There's a gentle rebuke from the Lord as to their ignorance at the present time. He rebukes them for their ignorance, but God does not leave them in their ignorance. The Lord graciously and mercifully gives them understanding as to what He had said. Here, I would submit to you, dear ones, we should recognize the difference that the Lord made between those who are obstinate and those who are ignorant. With those who are obstinate in sin or error, due to their obstinacy, they take offense at what the Lord says, as did the Pharisees. The Lord tells His disciples in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, let them alone. The disciples came to the Lord and said, Lord, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended at what you said about their traditions? And the Lord does not coddle the Pharisees because he recognizes in them an obstinacy in sin and error, he says to his disciples, let them alone. That is literally, leave them. Separate from them. Withdraw from them. The same word is used 
in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, where those who teach unsound doctrine, we are commanded to withdraw from them. In fact, it is the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians 7.11 for divorce. Be divorced from those who are obstinate in sin and error. Now, this is particularly true of ministers who are obstinate in sin or error. Proverbs chapter 19 Verse 17 gives to us our duty in such a case when it says, Proverbs 19, verse 27, I'm sorry. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. Don't listen to those who would lead you astray from that word of knowledge. Avoid them. Separate from them. It's interesting again. Uh, that particular verb that's used in Matthew 15:14, let them alone, is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It is an imperative, a command to do so. However, with those who are ignorant students, not obstinate teachers, the Lord continues to instruct in the ways of truth and righteousness, such ones. For the Lord will not break the bruised reed, nor quench the smoking flax. The ignorance of the, the disciples was culpable. They were responsible for their ignorance, and for that ignorance they were rebuked by the Lord. But their hungering and thirsting to know the truth was rewarded in that the Lord did give them further knowledge as to what He had said and meant. The substance of Christ's exposition in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 19, is this. If I were to... To summarize it, this is the substance of what the Lord says in these two verses. Sin does not proceed from physical objects and outward acts in and of themselves. You see, the illustration used by the Lord is that of a certain food that is eaten. The Lord speaks here of something that is eaten, that is taken into the body. It is not the food, the Lord says, in and of itself that defiles a man, for the food goes not to the heart of that man. That is, it doesn't go to his mind. It doesn't go to his affections. It doesn't go to his will. It doesn't defile his moral nature. But rather, that food goes into the stomach of the man and is soon eliminated. <clears throat> What does defile a man will be addressed by the Lord in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. So we'll hold off on that for just a moment. But let me make two applications of this principle taught by Christ before moving on to the next main point.
The first one is this. There is a liberty granted to the Christian in the use of things that are indifferent in and of themselves. For example, in the use of alcoholic beverages. It is not what goes into the body that morally defiles a man. Now, in making that statement, I am not saying one must use alcoholic beverages, that he's required to use alcoholic beverages. <clears throat> that we're required to give alcoholic beverages to, uh, to our children while they are young and in our home. All I'm saying is that he is free to do so in a social context if he desires to do so. And he's free to do so without sin. If beer or wine in and of themselves defile a man, then we must conclude that moral evil is in the very substance of that alcoholic beverage so that it is always sinful to use in any context even medicinally, if the sin resides in the alcohol, there is no context in which it could be used. It would be morally reprehensible in any way, any form in which it would be used. But that certainly can't be the case inasmuch as Paul actually commands Timothy to use a little wine for his oft-stomach problems and ailments. What is always forbidden in the scriptures is the excess of wine or drunkenness. According to Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine wherein is in excess. It's interesting that the same word for wine, the little word oinos, that same word that may make one drunk, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be not drunk with wine, is the same oinos, is the same word, is the same product that was made by Christ at the wedding there in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2, verse 9. It's not a different word, it's the exact same word that Christ made the water into wine. And it's the same word that is used in Luke chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, where we find a contrast between John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating, doesn't supply the bread, but we can supply it from the previous verse. The Son of Man is come eating bread and drinking. We can supply from the ver previous verse again. Drinking what? Drinking wine. And ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. The fact that he did partake of wine follows from the fact that he is charged with being a wine-bibber by certain ones because he would go and drink socially with certain 
of the publicans and the sinners. He would sit down to eat bread with them. He would go to their feasts and their festivals in order to present his claims, the cause for which he had come. But he was not defiled because he partook of wine in that context. Again, it is not the use of wine or beer that morally defile a man, but whether he does so to the glory of God. If a man is not using wine or beer to the glory of God, that is what defiles the man in that situation. That is from whence the corruption proceeds in his heart. That he is not sought to bring honor even in the food that he eats and even in the beverages which he drinks, whether it's water or whether it's wine. If he does not do so to the glory of God, that indicates sin proceeds from his heart. If he does so to the glory of God, he will not drink in excess, nor will he drink so as to cause a weak brother, not an obstinate brother, but a weak brother, to partake of that which yet the weak brother believes to be sin. According to Romans 14, verse 21, the apostle says there, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. We do not flaunt our liberties in front of a sincerely weak brother. But as Jesus made a distinction between obstinate men and a weak brother, so we must make those same kinds of distinctions ourselves. Dear ones, to be under the mastery of any substance rather than under the mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a moral evil as well. If we are controlled by a particular food or beverage, if it exercises mastery over us, then we again have fallen into sin. For the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And if in this particular context we understand that to refer to the riches of this world, to money, you cannot serve God and your wealth, well, it would equally apply to any other physical object or substance in this world. You cannot serve God and wine. You cannot serve God and any other substance. God must have supremacy. He must exercise mastery. Whatever we use, we must use to His glory and to profit and benefit the kingdom of Christ in some way. There must be some relationship. It cannot be divorced from that. And if it cannot be mastered, whatever the substance is, it would seem to be the better part of wisdom to avoid that substance as much as possible. 
if it cannot be mastered, to seek to avoid it as much as possible. There are certain things that may master us that we can't avoid. I don't know that we can avoid money, the use of money in this world. And so we will have to use it as necessary, but we need to pray fervently that we're not controlled by our wealth, our riches. But it's the evil that proceeds from within, covetousness, greed, that causes us to misuse that particular product, that substance of money. It is not the money itself that is wicked and evil. It is the love of money, the excessive, inordinate love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. The second application, before we move on to the second main point, is this. It applies to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. There in the Old Testament were certain types of food that were forbidden certain creatures that they were not to partake of under the Old Covenant. But I would submit to you, dear ones, it's not because those creatures were in and of themselves as physical objects or as creatures of God in and of themselves sinful, evil, and wicked. That was not the reason why they were forbidden to partake of those particular foods. The Lord, I would submit to you, sought to instruct His people, Israel, that they were a special, a unique people, set apart by God from all of the other nations of the world. And their separate diet would help to reinforce this truth, that they were a separate people, separated unto God, separated from the the heathen worship the peoples of the world. And I would submit to you that there was another reason which God would seek to instruct the people in giving to them these dietary laws and forbidding certain foods which were not in and of themselves sinful. I would submit that He did so in order to teach them that it is within the limits of His own authority to restrict certain things if he so desires. Now, we can't restrict other people from using those, but God has the authority to say when we can use something and when we can't use something. Just as he restricted Adam's use of the tree, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he restricted as well those who became Nazarites, that they couldn't eat any of the products of the grape during the time that they were under this particular vow. The Lord has the right and the authority to declare that. But the Lord alone is the Lord of our conscience. We cannot impose that upon others. Only the Lord can do that. Is this not the word of the Lord to the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10? You remember the vision of the sheet with the many unclean animals that was brought before Peter three times? And the Lord declared to Peter, What God hath cleansed, that 
call not thou common or unclean? Peter would, was, would say, after the Lord told him to kill and eat each time, Lord, I've never partaken of any of these particular things. But the Lord was teaching Peter that in passing from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, that those particular restrictions which had been authoritatively imposed upon God's people in the Old Testament were now being lifted to God's people under the New Covenant. This, I believe, this truth is made abundantly clear in 1 Timothy chapter 4 where we find the words of the Apostle and I would encourage you to listen very carefully to these words. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. <clears throat> Can we not see how <clears throat> the Romish Antichrist has imposed upon the consciences of men forbidding to eat of certain meats, certain foods? Can we not see how the Romish Antichrist has forbidden marriage? Now, this particular passage, I believe, does speak in a very direct sense to the doctrines of demons flowing from the Romish harlot from that system. But I would dare say that those doctrines of demons have been imbibed, have been drunk in as well by many who profess to be Protestants. In forbidding and saying that it is sinful to partake of something which God has created, whether it be something from the ceremonial law that God gives to us freely to partake of today, or whether it be the use of alcoholic beverages, these, I would submit to you, are condemned here as doctrines of demons. In Acts chapter 15, the Synod at Jerusalem did issue a decree that those who were Christians in the nations should abstain temporarily from these certain of these ceremonial restrictions, but there was a definite purpose, so as not to cause the Jewish 
brethren who had come to faith to stumble. These who were yet weak, who were coming out of, of having for centuries believed, practiced, and accepted these ceremonial distinctions, to automatically just to sever those ties uh, was very, very difficult for these particular believers. And so there was this transition period where the apostles say, during this transition period, while you're with these Jewish brethren, do not use your liberty to cause them to stumble. Avoid these things for the sake of your love for the brethren. But clearly, Paul does say in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that all foods that were forbidden under the Old Covenant are permitted to those under the New Covenant if they be received with prayer and thanksgiving. Now again, it doesn't mean that all the foods of the old that were restricted under the Old Covenant that one must eat of them today. There's no specific authorization that they... They have to eat pork today. If they choose not to do so, as with the wine, they're free to omit that from their diet. The issue here is one that it cannot, that particular choice that one makes cannot be imposed upon the conscience of others. The second main point is this. Sin originates from the inward lust of a man. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. <clears throat> and he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Now these are all things out that can be committed most of these things can be committed uh, by a person in his actions. These are forbidden things that will have uh, a certain effect in the outward man. One commits adultery in a very physical way by being unfaithful to his spouse and going to live with another woman or another man. That's an outward act. But the point of the matter is, where do these sins proceed from? They proceed not from the action, they proceed from the heart of the man or from the heart of the woman. Just as James <clears throat> chapter 1 Verses 13 through 15 tells us (coughs) 
Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It proceeds from the heart of the man, from the desires, from the thoughts, from the intents of the man. Here the Lord demonstrates the inherent corruption of man's heart. The sin which man commits, dear ones, is not accountable to God, nor even to the devil, but proceeds from man's own mind, affections, and will. The devil cannot make us do anything that we do not want to do by way of sin. He can certainly entice. He can set temptations before us. He can set these types of influences. But by the grace of God... We, the scripture says, we can resist the devil and the devil will flee. And so, ultimately, we are accountable for the sin for it proceeds from our own heart. We cannot blame it on someone else. That because someone else provoked me, someone else enticed me, that's why I sinned. They're responsible if they did provoke. They're responsible for their enticement and allurement to sin. But it is my sin that proceeds from my own heart for which I am accountable. I cannot shift the blame. I cannot pass the buck. There is coming a day, dear ones, when no man will pass the buck. A day in which we will all stand Jesus Christ and there will be no blame shifting on that day for the Lord will reveal to us the very desires the very sins within our own heart that have led to these particular actions and and words which we have uttered the specific sins are enumerated by the Lord Jesus there, and I am not going to have time to go through each of those particular words. Some of them are violations of the first table. For example, I would submit to you that certainly blasphemy and pride are violations directly against God. And certain of the other uh, sins that are mentioned there, I think would fall under that, under that category. Evil thoughts can be directed toward God as well as against man. But there are other, other sins that are mentioned there that are directed toward our neighbor and fall into the second table, commandments. But the Lord declares that all these evil acts and thoughts proceed from the heart and not from a physical object. I'm convinced that if we applied this particular truth and we pointed the finger at ourselves first and foremost before pointing our finger at others, 
that many, many of the problems within a marriage would immediately cease. Many, many of the problems within the church would immediately cease if we simply acknowledged our own sin and dealt with our own sin, repented of our own sin and sought forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to live according to His commandments, seeking to remedy those sins into which we have fallen. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, This is, I think, counsel that I have tried to give to all those whom I have counseled before being married. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Notice the Lord concludes by saying, there is a proper time to go to thy brother to seek to take out the mote out of his eye. But it's certainly not before thou hast first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. Deal honestly, sincerely with sin in your own life before going to others. Believe me, dear ones, people will not hear you They will not listen to you unless you take the biblical approach. If people know that you are coming and they see within your heart an arrogance, a pride in pointing out their sin, but not a humility, not a brokenness in your own heart, they will not hear. They will not listen, and what will probably happen is that it will develop into a nasty fight. Yeah. And so, God help us not to justify ourselves, but to very clearly look into our own hearts with regard to these sins that are listed by the Lord Jesus Christ here in Mark chapter 7. In closing this Lord's Day, the sermon, I would simply say this. It is necessary to state that just as the use of a mere physical object in and of itself is not sinful, so likewise the opposite is also true. The use of a mere physical object object in and of itself is not necessarily holy. Today we have the privilege of administering the sacrament of baptism to one of our covenant children. But it is not the application, even though this particular application of water is commanded by the Lord, it is not the application of water that saves anyone. 
It is not the application of water that makes a person morally holy and righteous. It has the effect of federally setting them apart from the world as a part of Christ's kingdom, visibly, looking at the visible. But, but it does not necessarily alter the inner man, the mere application of water. It is Jesus Christ alone, dear ones, who can save us. It is not any of our mere actions, even though those actions may be authorized by the Lord. Where there is no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, where the grace of God is not operative, there will not be righteousness or holiness through even obedience to the outward commandments of God. If faith is not mixed with that, it will profit a man nothing. It will be vain and useless unless there is faith in Christ, unless there is love for the Lord in the use of all of those outward ordinances which the Lord has given unto us. I don't want you to walk away thinking today that what the Lord has commanded us to do in our bodies by way of outward actions is unimportant. We don't want to go from the extreme of the Pharisees to the extreme of the antinomians where we just say, well, it doesn't matter what I do outwardly. I can do anything I want to do in outwardly as long as my heart is right with the Lord. You see, the problem is your heart can't be right with the Lord if you're going to disobey and do contrary to what God calls you to do outwardly. The two, like the first table and the second table, go together, can't be separated. So the heart and the body must work together. And what we do outwardly must be the expression of our heart toward the Lord, our love for Him and our love for one another. And so, Christ, dear ones, taught that our obedient actions should be the visible expression of our love for Jesus Christ. That's true Christianity. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank Thee for Thy Word which has again penetrated to our heart and revealed to us our own sin our own hypocrisy in walking contrary to what we profess and walking contrary to what we believe. We pray, Father, that we would, Lord, avoid the pitfalls of Rome and of the Pharisees and making holiness to reside in the actual object or the action of the ordinance. That we would see, O Lord our God, that we are to obey Thee in these things, but, O our Father, apart from faith, they are meaningless. They are useless to us. We pray, Father, we would not play the role of a hypocrite even as we come to worship Thee, as we sit to listen to Thy Word as it's being preached. But, O God, our hearts, our minds, our bodies would be working together in every way 
to avail ourselves of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us, our Father, that uh, by truth, let us not be obstinate in our sin and error, but let us be, Father, as those who are ignorant, yes, but ignorant students who hunger and thirst for the truth and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray all of these things, trusting in the Lord Jesus alone for our eternal salvation. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.